0: there is always a way for you to be a leader. Now, I don't know how you should be a leader. That depends on your personality. But every person has a capacity to be a leader.
1: Hi, I'm Rivke Silver. And I'm Alex Fletcher, And this is Deep Meaningful Conversations, powered by Meaningful Minute.
2: The podcast where we explore the complexities, nuances, and joys of being a firm woman. hi there listeners hope everyone's doing well i'd like to give a shout out to my friend ruchama heber who is a teacher in a Hasidish girls school in muncie and shared with me that she was teaching a class on seneas and a student quoted something that she had heard on this podcast that she was listening to deep meaningful conversations no way yeah (laughs) and it was from our seneas episode with jamie geller a few months back um First of all, I love that teenagers are listening to DMC. And if you are a teenager, number one, I think that you're really going to find this episode interesting. Secondly, please feel free to share your feedback with us. You can send us an email at dmc at meaningfulminute.org.
1: What a great story. Mm -hmm. I I really love that. Let's jump right in. Today, we are talking with Dr. Leslie Ginsberg-Klein about the history of the base Yaakov movement, the lessons and legacy of Sarah Schneerer, and about girls' education today. Before we tell you about why Leslie is the expert to DMC with about this topic, let's just mention now, Alex, that it's a funny thing, actually, that neither of us went to Beis Yaakov. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Yeah. I went to a public high school in Des Moines, Iowa.
2: Far, (laughs)
1: far away. Very far removed.
2: (laughs) And I went to a yeshiva high school with a step up, for me at least, when I went to Dar Haibina, which was a seminary that Every seminary changes year to year. When I was there, it was year three, and there were base Yakov girls who went there, but it's not considered a base Yakov seminary, for those of you in the know with you know all the lingo. Um, but a few years ago, someone in the community found out that I didn't grow up at the base Yakov and she said to me, oh, Alex, I thought you were a base Yakov girl your whole life, and I took that as the ultimate compliment. Oh, for sure.
1: I would have also. That's so nice. <laughs> Um, yeah, my daughter is in line to go to a community-based Yakov type of high school when you know when she gets there, which is where your daughter, do- where your um, oldest daughter is, Alex. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's so interesting how these things go, right? Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, let's tell you about Leslie. I know Leslie only peripherally, really, from when um, we lived in Baltimore. She runs this like open mic night mm-hmm. for women and things like woman like women's night on or something I forget what mm-hmm. it, I forget what it's called exactly but she runs it and she plays guitar and she sings like pithy songs and I and I went and I performed at one it must have been like a, a decade ago but yeah I I've also been it. to
2: them she started them in the Upper West Side it was like the first like for women's woman's open mic and I love how she continues that today that's actually something really cool about Leslie like she's an academic but she is hysterical hysterical, such a sense of humor. She also is a super talented singer, musician. She's got a lot going for her. So Leslie and I both met probably like over a decade ago when she taught Jewish history, and I taught Judaic studies at Beth Tafila Community School in Baltimore. So we're colleagues. I remember once she told me that someone who you worked with in the past is still considered your colleague you don't need to say we're former colleagues we really? actually still are colleagues oh, that's so interesting yes, she taught me that mm. so. um and we've also worked together in some like social media initiatives and different things over the years leslie came to cleveland a few years ago as a scholar in residence at young israel and i was involved in helping with that so here's her bio so you get to know her she is the Academic dean of the Women's Institute of Torah Seminary and College um, that is in Baltimore. She speaks on Jewish history, Tanakh, leadership, communication skills um, across the United States and internationally. Leslie received her Ph.D. from New York University, where she researched the history of Orthodox girls' education in America and the base Yaakov movement. She's an alumna of Michlala, Stern College for Women, and the Wexner Graduate Fellowship. And I remember this. She was a recipient of New York Jewish Week's 36 Under 36 award back in 2009.
1: Wow, wow. Um, Leslie has given some very interesting talks about the history of Base Yaakov and the lessons we can learn from Sarah Schneer and how former girl, formal, formal Jewish girls' education was founded. Um, a few notable titles, which can be found on her website, um, if you want to hire her for a talk, there are a lot of topics are listed there. So, quote, everything you never learned about the history of Yaakov, um, tradition and innovative change, Sarah Schneer's life and legacy, understanding your lofty calling. Sarah Schneer Sh- Sarah Schneer as a model for women's leadership today and Raising Expectations and Lowering Hemlines a Revolutionary Shift in American Girls Education It's they all sound they all sound so interesting I know
2: Raising Expectations and there's more there's more that's there's just more. A, a selection Sarah Schneer whenever I write about Sarah Schneer I have to Google the spelling of her last name mm. I never get it right mm. <laughs> and it's just mm. interesting interesting last name <laughs> anyway um, I so appreciate history and that is why I so appreciate what Liz- Leslie brings to the table I always remember my history teacher telling us in high school, quote unquote, the more things change and the, mo- the more things stay the same. And I was so thrilled in this interview where Leslie said the same thing, because yes. um, that's <laughs> just something, one of those lines you never forget. And I think it's so important, you know, really to learn about our history as Jews. There are so many pointers and lessons based on our past that can apply to our present. But wait a minute. What did Leslie teach us? We can't do present. We
1: can't engage in presentism. Right. So that's something a little right, you, different. Right. We'll, she'll, she'll, tell she'll tell us, us about it. <laughs> yes.
2: By the way, <laughs> big fan here of Dovi Saffir's work in Mishmacha magazine, where I think just brings history to life. And then you're like, wow, like I didn't know. I, there's knowledge is really, really
1: powerful. Absolutely. I, I am of the same mind. Um, it's interesting. My father actually has a degree in history. So I grew oh. up in a very like history steeped house. Um, where it was very valued, and I have always been just really, really fascinated with it. I mean, like, I will read Rabbi Barrel Wines, like, those big coffee table books, like, for pleasure. (laughs) It's so interesting to me. Um, And just to be able to put things in context, like, this happened then, this happened then, and this is how things evolved. Um, And just the the context, I I find it really interesting. And also to learn about the historical shifts and how they happen and why and how society changes and evolves and the reasons why we do the things we do. Like, what's Mm -hmm. the reason behind things? So I am just was so excited when we were bringing Leslie on for this DMC and now without further ado let's bring you our DMC with Dr. Leslie Ginsberg klein
2: Welcome Leslie to DMC. Thank you for having me. So let's talk a little bit about um, how you grew up religious wise. I'm very curious about your background, you know, about, like the kind of schools you went to, camps,
0: influences in your life, etc. So I grew up in a family that I would call centrist Orthodox or maybe, you know, modern Orthodox 40 years ago. I went to a modern Orthodox Zionist elementary school at Hillel Torah in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago. And... um, from there, I went to the Base High School in Chicago, Hannah Sachs. At that time, it was the only Base Now there are two. Um, it would be what I would describe in my research as an out of town Base mm-hmm. a more open minded community Base in Chicago. And that's where I went to high school. That was not the traditional route. Most of my classmates went to the co ed Ida Crown. But like many families, so I'm the youngest. And by the time I was entering high school, my a number of my older siblings had already gone to Israel and from doubt, so to speak. Hmm. And that kind of pulled our family a little bit more to the right. And um, so I ended up in the base High School, which resulted in a completely messed up Havara, where I hmm. you know, grew up speaking, I, I learned to speak Hebrew in Havara Svaradit, and then switched into a school that was, you know, Ashkenazis. So for many years, it was I have, like the most messed up Hebrew. Like, you'll, right. If I start talking Hebrew, I would literally flip in mid-sentence yeah. from tough to stuff and back again, just because that's what happens when you end up in diverse schools growing up. I think that my mother is a very strong influence on me. She um, was, she is, I mean, she is a public speaker, um, and she she gave this set of talks called Jewish Women Hidden in History. That was a series that she gave. Cool. That there were all these women in Jewish history that no one had ever heard of. And she gave speeches telling their stories. And that fascinated me. And so I grew up in a house that had books on all of these women. And so I got very into women's history myself. And whenever I had any project to do for school, elementary school, and even in high school, whenever I had any project to do, I always did it on a woman when we actually had an assignment to do a project on a woman in social studies and in, in Jewish history, uh, there was like, I was standing in the hallway and there was like a line oh. of of students in my class. And it was just, you know, okay, what are you interested in? Okay. Sarah Aaron said, next. Okay. What are you interested in? Okay. Next. Okay. What are you interested in? Oh, do Delsea have worms? Next. You know, and it was wow. just like running through all of the women. And, you know, that was just something that I – and of grew up surrounded. Now, of course, I didn't like realize the connection. At some point in grad school, I like said to my mother, "Like, do you realize that that you were very much into Jewish women's history, and now like I study mm-hmm. Jewish women's history? That like that's probably related." And she was like, "Um, yeah, duh, yeah, I've realized that." Oh, you <laughs> finally gave her the
2: acknowledgement. For many years, she was waiting for that. <laughs>
0: In my own research, I've kind of moved away, and in my teaching, when I teach women in Jewish history, I don't talk, people all say to me, like, oh, what women are you going to teach about? And I don't teach about, I, I don't teach about really specific women. I'm not into, like, great people history. I'm really much more interested in the social history of element of, like, if you were a Jewish woman in 18th century Europe, what would your life have been like? Oh, I love that. How would it have been different or similar than our experiences today? Because in some ways, it is so fundamentally different. And we and oftentimes in the study of history, we make that presentism mistake of judging the past on today's standards. And oftentimes my students will be like, what? Like, what was happening here? You know, because Larissa's story about a wedding. And like, you Know there, there's no mechitza in the dancing, and, and there's like surprise, like, no, of course, there, there wasn't. Mm. You know, like there were just women dancing, there was it just was so you know, the structure was so different, it was nothing, it didn't resemble the mm. you know, weddings today, it was so different. Um, and and other times, you know, if you read the memoirs of Glickold Hamlin and her struggles marrying off your kid her kids, you're like, yeah. The more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, this could have been written yesterday. Yeah. And she has this, Hamlin has this amazing story where she plans a, a wedding. And, and, you know, there were just supposed to be like 40 people at this wedding. But, you know, one thing leads to another. And in the end there were like 300. <laughs> and there wasn't enough food. <laughs> it's hysterical. It's like, hey, it cost me a fortune. Yeah. You know, so, like these stories are hysterical. So, and are so um, reminiscent. Hmm. Um, I can think of one other story that that I remember, and I I think I've told this story before, but I had a really wonderful history teacher in elementary school. Her name is Mrs. Rilke Eichtenstein, and she did like the impossible of weaving Jewish and global world American history into one narrative class that completely made sense. Like, I just, you know, people try to do it and fail and don't know how to do it. and, And she was doing this 40 years ago and doing it beautifully and still does. She's still teaching. Um, but one time I, you know, I had mentioned to you earlier that every time I did a project, I was going to do a woman. So one time the project was do to write a paper on one of the Amoras, one of the rabbis from the Talmud. And all of the boys in my class were like, you can't do a rabbi this time. I'm sorry. You can't do a woman this time. Mm-hmm. And she said, Yes, you can, Leslie. You should do Breweria. <laughs> and that was such an amazing moment for me. Such an amazing moment because I had this moment of like mm, inside, you know, of like, oh my god, I can't do a woman. Like it, that was so painful, and I'm being teased, you know. Um, <laughs> How old were you? And she just like stepped in, and it was like I can do Breweria. and that just gave me the message, kind of that feeling of there is always a place for me. There is always a place for me as a woman. There's a place for me as my interests, and 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 my passions and that there is room for that. You just have to think creatively.
1: That's beautiful.
0: Okay, Leslie, we would love to hear about your
1: PhD. I'm so impressed. Um, first of all, like what is it in? And how did you decide to pursue it? Where'd you go? And also I would love to hear like what what was it like pursuing a PhD on like a religious topic but within a secular institution?
0: I imagine that could have been an interesting
1: experience.
0: Sure. Okay, so my Ph.D. is in education and Jewish studies from New York University. That was an interdisciplinary program where you chose within each department what you were focusing on. And so within the Jewish studies department is Jewish history, within the um, education department is history of education. So all my advisors on my doctoral dissertation were historians. Mm. So it is it is a history, Jewish history dissertation. Awesome. Um, how is it doing it at NYU? So NYU has an absolutely phenomenal department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies. The Jewish history department is phenomenal. When you start applying for a PhD, so one of the things you do is look at who would be the historians that you would want to work with. Who do you want to be advising your committee? So and that to a great extent determines where you end up doing your doctorate. So I happen to really like the faculty at NYU, Um, my dissertation shares a historian named Chasia Diner, who uh, writes on Jewish women's history in America. So I was really interested in working with her. And they also have phenomenal Marian Kaplan, who's a a phenomenal um, European historian. There was just really great, really great, really strong Jewish history department at at NYU. And I even looked at other schools, like, you know, I'm from from Chicago, I toyed with going back, I, I, I like went, I I went and visited Northwestern there was no one, there was no one there that there was an intuitive connection to work with. Right. So that really wasn't a great option for me. So in terms of, of that question, oh, they were super supportive and they were super supportive of my topic. And my committee was super supportive of my topic. The other members of my committee was a wonderful, wonderful, historian of education named Harold Wexler mm-hmm. and, and also had done a lot of research in, in the Jewish world and was connected to that. And, a, and, and unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. He was a wonderful man. Um, and the third member of my committee was a woman named Diana Turk, who was in the education school, and she did gender and education. So it was kind of rounded out. There was the Jewish historian, the Historian of Education with a Jewish bent and, and then gender historian Fascinating. of education. Yeah. So, what was your, um? what did your you do undergra-
1: for your undergraduate and your master's degree? What is, what did you study for that?
0: Okay. So, my undergrad is from, I went to Stern. So after I graduated, Hannah Sachs, I went, spent a year at Michalá and then I went to Stern. I majored in history at Stern. And um, when I graduated, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I really didn't. I ended up, Well, I'll just say that senior year, I took a course in in women in American history with Dr. Ellen Schrecker. Famously known as Shrek or the Grade Wrecker. <laughs> went to Stern and, and and know her. I always, I, I always kills me that I don't have a great like name to rhyme. Oh, to to, to have a name that you could right. get, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> Dr. Klein needs a name. <laughs> oh. Everyone is listening. Yeah, you can send us an email <laughs> DMC at
1: if you have fine. recommendations. Your
0: grades will be fine. Like, no, it just doesn't. doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I did class senior year on on women in American history, and I did my project on on my final project on two women in the 1960s and just the way their kind of experiences diverged. And it just got me really interested in thinking about how women's, women in like Jewish women in America, how like things changed, how things shifted over time. And and um, the more I thought about it, the more I felt that high school and specifically the base Yaakov educational experience was so formative to the identity and like the cultural identity of Orthodox women in America. And that that schooling, the same way, you know, we are an education-based community. You know, men, to a great extent, they define themselves by where they went to yeshiva. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's, oh, he's a Chaline Berliner. Like, decades later, they'll still, ref- you know, that the same really was true for women, that women were so defined by their educational experiences. And it, I got very Fascinated in this idea of what Basiakov served for the Orthodox communion, like the role it placed in women's lives. And I think that's something I started thinking about in that class. But then I just went and was a reporter for a financial news reporter at Bloomberg because <laughs> I knew what I wanted to do. And I was, I liked writing. I was a writer. So I was a journalist for a couple of years and I, I like really hated it, like really, really did not enjoy journalism. And I was like, well, I don't really know what I want to do. But the only thing I really like is history. So, you know, why don't I, you know, I had a very education driven family. I'm the, I'm the only one in my family who did not go to graduate school straight from undergrad. And that was a thing. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, <laughs> was anxious to get back into grad school. So I'm like, okay, whatever, I'll just go get a master's in history. That'll be fun. You know, and, and I really liked NYU. I was already living in Manhattan. And I remember meeting with um, someone at NYU and them asking me, you know, would you ever consider doing a PhD? And I was like, like, I don't, I don't know. Like you look at the requirements and it's mm-hmm. like, I don't think so. I don't know. I'm like, Am I might get myself into that. Like write a <laughs> dissertation. Are you crazy? Mm-hmm. Um, but policies were changing at NYU that year. And to get a master's degree, you paid full tuition. But if you did a PhD, then you not only didn't pay tuition, but you got a stipend to go to school. Oh, well, that makes a difference. So I was like, I mean, well, that kind of sounds like a good idea. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I was talking to someone in in actually the history department who was like, I mean, you might as well apply. And if you don't like it after, you know, a year and a half, you can just drop out and you'll have your master's and you'll have gotten it paid for. And I was like, oh, um, okay. So I guess I'll do that. So I ended up applying for the Ph.D., and um, I was originally in a joint program with the history department and the Jewish history department. But I really, I, over time that the new, this new program that was between the ed school and the Jewish history department opened. that was sort of a better fit for me that I migrated. And I, I switched into that program. It was like just a better fit for what I wanted to do. Um, so my dissertation was on the history of Basiak in America. I was really grateful that that NYU was really, really supportive because other friends of mine in other places who wanted to do Jewish topics were always pushed to like quote unquote globalize.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like a Jewish topic inherently isn't important enough. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you want to do the history of Basiaco? No, no, you have to do like compare Basiaco to Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. Okay, but, but I'm not interested in doing four years of research in Catholic schools. Right. I'm not interested right. in that. And I believe that the history of Basiaco has enough inherent value. But sometimes you have to fight against that of, mm-hmm. of like pr- like why a Jewish topic, a quote unquote Jewish topic has value without it being compared to some non-Jewish element. But I did not experience that in NYU. Beautiful. At all. They, they were really, really supportive. Okay, so can you imagine someone saying, I like to study like the history of
2: education and the Zulu culture, you know, and the African tribes. Could, would, would someone like that, be received with the same type of, you know, concern. Oh well, no, you need to compare, you know, the zoo education to I don't know French education. I mean, I feel like there isn't there some kind of respect oh. for like certain cultures, and we don't need to re- compare yeah, them. Yeah, the cynic
0: in me would say they'll not get that exactly for right? like, <laughs> Jewish Project One. Right, but again, it all depends. Where I didn't get that at NYU, they, right. they loved my topic. They were super supportive. Amazing. Um, I actually think today probably you would have an easier time because Polish historians. Who are not Jewish at all, write about Sarah Schneer. Um the, like, Polish archives got a hold of her diary, and it's going to be translated. There's hmm. po- there's graphic novels about Sarah Schneer's really? life coming out of Poland. Yeah, hmm. she is she. Sarah Schneer and the movement are like very hot in um in Poland. I feel like she's become like a little bit. This is like a ridiculous statement, but I feel like she has become to Poland what like the Golem is to. Prague. Prague yeah yeah like we ever go to Prague like you know every postcard has the golem on it. like just you know just a piece a Jewish thing that like the uh-huh. general culture is like to. But, really uh, neat. but her story has grown in renown not just in the Jewish world but outside the Jewish world so okay. in general and there's actually a two-day conference on base Yaakov being held at um, University of Toronto in March are you going yeah, for sure. <laughs> are you speaking? I am speaking at it. Amazing. Yes, amazing.
2: Okay, so lo- what I'd love to hear from you are your favorite takeaways from your study of the Basiakov movement.
0: My Favorite takeaways from my study of the Basiakov movement: there are so many. I'm sure. Um, um, one of them is the efficacy of grassroots movements for change within Orthodoxy, and Basiakov was essentially a grassroots movement. Um, ha- tell us how. Well, I mean, a woman just started it on her own hmm. with you know, she just, you know, had this idea. She had an idea. Um, it wasn't the, it wasn't her idea. Originally, there was a lot of talk in the press. There were, You know, when when Sarsha was growing up, there were high levels of assimilation and even conversion amongst um, Orthodox women. There were a lot of social problems and many people in the press, you know, leaders tied this to lack of Jewish education women they they had no education so once they're very much exposed to the outside world and they're going to you know there's compulsory schooling so they're going to what we would call today public schools and they're in out in the workplace they're exposed to a lot of different influences and they had no training in Judaism to kind of balance that so there were a lot of social problems and this was something that was discussed but the community thought that Education that Jewish education for women was at least socially unacceptable, if not outright forbidden by halacha. Not allowed. So, her. So this issue was discussed in the press. It was a very politically charged issue, but no one did anything about it because everyone was kind of like paralyzed by the controversialness of the whole, the whole issue and this whole halachic piece of whether or not it's it's permitted or not permitted and Sarah Schneer just you know she she kind of leaves Poland for a couple years during World War One gets exposed to neo-orthodoxy in Vienna and it empowers her it empowers her and and she kind of now sees a, a, a way she learns you know this way of of synthesizing traditional Judaism with modernity thinks hey this would go this would do really well with with women in Poland if I could just transport this and teach and decides to start a school now first of all she decides to start a youth movement hmm. her original plan was not to start a school but to start like a, a a social movement for teenage girls the same way that any social movement had their youth arm you know so that's what she she wanted to start and she goes back and and she she starts getting support she's um she gets support from one of the Sansa um there had been two girls in the Sansa rebbe's family who um who ran away from home and ran to convents to mm. kind of escape the family they wanted to go to university so that was something they were very well familiar with um, Rachel mannekin has a whole book on 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 um called Rebellion of the Daughters that talks about the Sansa Rebi's, the girls in the Sansa Rebbe. I think the Sansa Rebbe's granddaughters. Um, so she she gets this support and she's like, I'm gonna start this movement. And she gathers together girls and they are like, I'm so not interested in this. Like, are you serious? This is what you gathered us together for? Mm-hmm. So she, she tries to start the social movement. She fails a number of times. Before then she says, you know what? I gotta start with girls when they're younger. I'm starting with girls when they're younger, I should start a school. Now, which started off as an afternoon school, you know, you'd go to public school, and then you go, would go to Basiakow. And um, out of like the 300 Basiakow schools that existed in Poland, like the vast majority of them were afternoon schools
1: wow. that girls
0: went to after public school. There was only a few, like what we would call today, day schools in the big cities. So anyway, so she um, has this idea, and she mentions that her, her brother was a very, very close confidant. And her brother responds to her, Do, you don't want to get involved in something so political, right? Like, oh, right, it, this is so fraught. Like, are you crazy? Like, what are you getting involved in this? And she's like, No, I, I gotta, I, I gotta do something. I gotta do something. So she just starts this school. And you know, Naomi Seidman, who recently published a biography of, of Sarah Schneer, um, she has a really interesting theory that because Sarah Schneer was a woman, she was actually more able to make this change in society, because that whole halakhic debate, you know, is it permitted? Is it forbidden for a woman to learn Torah? You know. That was happening in the Bate Midrash, or the base medrashas, depending on whether you went to a Zionist school or (laughs) (laughs) So that's where that was happening. But as a woman, she was totally separate from that world. And so, in a sense, could bypass controversy that no man could. Mm -hmm. The men couldn't bypass the controversy. They had to deal with that issue. But a woman could just bypass it. And she did. And she She just started the school. And then the school is successful. And ultimately, her success is what garners her the attention and the support of the wider community. Mm -hmm. And obviously, that support allows her to expand exponentially.
2: Isn't there some myth about the supporter huskamas that she got? I'm sure there are lots of myths surrounding (laughs) Sarah (laughs) Schneer.
0: Yeah. Um, the 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 main myth that I see peddled around is that she asked the Chavitz Chaim right. for permission to start Beis Yakov before she started Beis Yaakov. Um She never met or contacted the Chabad Chaim in any way, shape, or form at any point in in the history of Beis Yakov. Um, the only person that she spoke to at all before she started. Bisacov was the Belzer Rebbe, and that was on her brother's suggestion, and that was kind of to get a little bit of social cover. Yeah. You know, he he was, he, she was about to embark on something controversial, and he said, you know, why, why don't you go to the Rebbe and try to get a bracha? And they go to the Rebbe and ask him like the most vague statement. My 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 sister, you know, the text is there. They sent hand in a kvitzal, like a note to the Rebbe. My sister wants to lead Jewish girls in the Jewish way, mm. and the Rebbe said bracha vatzlacha. And they took that to, you know, as kind of cover for any kind of opposition to say, well, you know, they have a bracha from the Belzarevi for her endeavors. But she got kind of this, like, blanket overarching thing. Um, I feel like this is instructive in,
1: like, how to ask a (laughs) (laughs) Shila.
0: But the thing is, she wasn't asking a Shiloh. Right, now, she was getting a bracha. Again, that's presentism. She wasn't asking a Shiloh. At no point in the history did she ever ask a Shiloh, is this permitted or forbidden? Hmm. She asked for a bracha for her endeavors. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and. That's an and, important and, distinction. And it's an important distinction, but it's also, again, it's a presentism thing. Like, she asked the, like, what do you think? She sent the Chavetz Chaim an email? Mm-hmm. No, when you say like, presentism, getting- I'm
1: not, I'm like, I'm not in your world. I'm not in the historian world, even though I love history. What do you mean presentism?
0: when we judge figures from the past against today's standards Mm -hmm. and find them like guilty, well, they're a bad person because they didn't believe what we believe in today, today, even though what they did and believed was completely normal for their time period. You can't hold people accountable for what was for today's standards and what wasn't kind of expected or normal in that time. Mm -hmm. So we have a a much smaller world today. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a much different relationship with rabbinical leadership than than people had 100 years ago how would how okay how would a poor divorced hasidish woman gain access to the Chaviz Chayim, who by the way is like with his yeshiva in russia right. and she's in poland right. and world war one is raging and <laughs> right. they're on different sides literally on different sides of like you know the war like physically right. in different you know how would that have happened? It wouldn't have happened. How did she get into the Rebbe? Because her brother was a Ben Bias with the Rebbe, And she got on a train and traveled to see him. You know, it's it's not like mm-hmm. it's a completely different world. And
2: that's why it's important to know history is to understand what that world looked like and not to compare it and use our standards right. against and, it. And not, yeah.
0: make, and not to make that's not fair. Right, these kinds of assumptions. Right. You know, when to Yisrael, which was actually also a very um, controversial organization at the time, um, the Belzer Rebbe actually um, say, was opposed to Agudah. and when Sarshnir aligned with Aguda, kind of turned on on the Beis Yaakov movement. And and the Belzer Rebbe did not. I mean, when you're talking about, did the Belzer Rebbe know what she was trying to do or not? The Belzer Rebbe did not permit the daughters of Belzer Hasidim to go to Beis Yaakov hmm. once the school was actually you know established. Um, but a lot, you know, there was a lot of of um, Opposition to Basiakov Yaakov, um, Rachel Manikin feels like a lot of that was tied to the affiliation with Aguda, because Aguda was this controversial organization, because Aguda was founded by by um, neo Orthodox people and like was a reverse organization. So when it kind of moved to Eastern Europe, one of the things it wanted to do was help build education in Eastern Europe, and rather than reinvent the wheel, hey, there's a woman who's doing something that's successful, so they aligned with Sushir and kind of adopted the base Yaakov movement. So Aguda was enough, was like kind of savvy enough in 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 all the innovations they're doing, um, you know. Another big Aguda innovation of the time, Stafiomi, hmm. which was also controversial when it started. Really, wow, so interesting. Yeah, totally, it's, the world know, has so changed. I, changed. Up... I, I love history. <laughs> yes, it's yes. so interesting. So Aguda knew that there's they'll have to face opposition. So thought you know what, let's get some letters of Haskama. So Aguda reached out to different. Rabbanim, and especially those who were involved in a good of the gara rebbe you know and when they wanted to like you know they were doing a major fundraising campaign for the seminary they printed like letters of haskama from all of these rabbis and though these are the letters that that are kind of referred to as like oh Sarah asked all these people before she started but no it was a good on it was hmm. years after the schools were started so um the hobbit times letter is dated 1933, which is 16 years hmm. after the founding of Beis Yaakov. And that was written specifically to the rabbi of a town named Freistock, who would not allow Beis Yaakov to open in his town. So Agoda reached out to the and said, could you please write a letter to this rabbi so that he will let us open, you know, let Beis Yaakov open in Freistock. His brother, by the way, also opposed Beis Yaakov starting in his hometown. And, you know, Who's uh, brother?
1: Sar- Sar- it? brother. brother or brother? No, no, brother? no.
0: The rabbi of Freistock.
1: <laughs> the rabbi of Freistock. I was
0: like... <laughs> the rabbi of had a brother who gave Be- was also a rabbi and gave Bessiakov trouble. And by the time Bessiakov was founded in his town, they had already lost a ton of girls to the Haskalah schools, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. were opening. Like they were competing. Mm-hmm. There were Haskalah schools opening. There were Bessiakov schools opening. They were competing for the Jewish girls in town. And if Bessiakov didn't get their... Early and get there fast and get themselves established, then those girls were lost. Wow, wow,
1: it's intense. Um, so Sarah Schneer, has she's a, she is she's a fascinating person in history and she, like when you think of like a leader of the Jewish people, it, like her her resume is not necessarily what you would picture, you know. Um, but I would love to hear about how like do you consider her a leader? Was she? in what way, um, you know, was she before her time? I think yes, but I would love to hear your, you know, opinion. And also what are your thoughts about leadership that we as from women can learn from her without, you know, engaging in uh, presentism?
0: Oh, nice one, Riffie. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So was she a leader? Without a doubt. It's not even a question. Was she a leader? Her students viewed her as their spiritual leader. Oh, wow. She became, you know, when Beis Yaakov started, so Beis Yaakov was highly Hasidish in Poland. Well, like
1: Poland, was highly, Poland was highly Hasidish. No? Poland was highly, right. Yeah.
0: And accordingly, most of the girls in Beis Yaakov were from Hasidish families. So when they, Beis Yaakov became to them, when you read the description, it became to them their their Hasidim, their mm. Hasidism. You know, one of the reasons that Beis Yaakov had to start was because, they're, because of how gendered the structure of Hasidic society was. You know, come Rosh Hashanah, through Sukkot, right? The the men of the family, they jump on the train, they go off to the Rebbe's town to spend Yontev from the Rebbe. Where are the women? Right. They're just by themselves, they're alone. Sarsha wrote about this, right. that like, they don't know anything. There's no, they they they're, the holidays have no meaning, they've no intellectual concentration, or, or they're, they've no knowledge, and there's no connection. Mm-hmm. And so what Yaakov did for girls and women was provide that knowledge and provide that connection. And, you know, um, Benos was founded in conjunction with Yaakov. So if you read Pearl Benish's stories about Benos. So when, do, when were Benos gatherings? Benos gathered Friday night when the men were at Shul. Um, Shalashtis time. Instead, you know, where the men were having Shalashtis and Shul and dancing and I mean, words of Torah. Now the girls had somewhere to go. They had somewhere to go where they would be with their friends and they would learn Torah and they would sing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, side point, those are also times where all of these other organizations, these non-form organizations were having their meetings. So it was also keep, keep girls in a good, but that's what example was, was environment and education. But if you read about the descriptions of like the seminary graduation, the events, it really reads like Hasidish gatherings. And that's what it became for women. And it makes sense because that's how they saw Judaism. So when they were able to have their own expression, it kind of replicated what was happening in the male world. And I would argue that in America, Bisiakol in many ways models the litvish yeshiva. Hmm. The same way where where Sarshanier's students refer to her as like their rebbe, hmm. she was definitely their leader. Vichna Kaplan, her, her protege, Students refer to her as the Rosh Hashiva really? uh. as, as like one of the, go- both of them are referred to as like the Godole HaDor, you know?
2: Yeah. Leslie, you'll appreciate this. My daughter is, my daughter's applying to seminaries and I had a meeting with her principal. We are also out of town based Yakov here in Cleveland. Some of these seminaries, though, the rabbitsons at the helm, they're powerhouses. And they were describing yes, some of them and using language like, oh, she's an Eloy, literally Eloy genius, yeah. brilliant, you know, what I mean, I almost like the only frame of reference I really have for that is a Rosh Hashiva type of person. But these are women who really are geniuses, literally.
0: Right. And you know what, that's kind of the, the trajectory of Sarashanir. What, what was the goal of Yako? Seriously, what was the goal of Yako? Right, the Yako seminary. The goal was to create women leaders, leader educators for the next generation. Sarashanir wrote a letter towards the end of her death that is considered to be her ethical will. They refer to the Tzava'ah the of Sarashanir. Published in yearbooks, it's famous. Google it's so easy to find a copy. Mm-hmm. Okay, what is the driving message of that document, of that letter, of that ethical will? Is be leaders. It's be leaders. It's saying, be leaders. What are your reasons to not be leaders? Here are reasons you should be leaders. You have to be leaders for the next generation. Mm. She, she, her students saw herself as a leader. She was a leader, and her goal was to create a generation of leaders that would then create future generations of leaders. And she did. She saw a need for women need to have leaders
2: who are women. So for the practical takeaway for us, what would you suggest?
0: So I think one is to be to be a leader and that there is always a way for you to be a leader. Now, I don't know how you should be a leader. That depends on your personality. But every person has a capacity to be a leader. Uh, Sarah Schneer Faced adversity throughout her life. She faced financial adversity. She was poor. Um, personal adversity. She she got married later. She had an unhappy marriage. She was divorced. You know, she over. She was teased as a kid for her piety. She was teased for being interested in in from her spirituality, and she overcame all of that to become a leader for the ages. Now, ev- not everyone's going to become the most the super famous person. That doesn't matter. That might not be where your leadership lies. But every person has ability for leadership. Yeah. The other thing is that every person has the ability to enact change. Do you know that in search society society, um, girl single single girls did not go to show on Shabbos. They mm-hmm. didn't only married women went to show single girls didn't. She thought single girls should go to show. Do You know, what she did. She just started taking her students to show with her. Hmm. And that's how she just changed conventions. So there's I think there's like always a reluctance to change, to get involved in advocacy. And by the way, by advocacy I don't mean hosting on social media. Mm. That's not advocacy. Yeah, thanks for clarifying. Real ad, ad, real advocacy is the hours and hours of of just soul crushing work that if you're successful, no one will ever know you were ever involved. Right. Okay, that, that's until that's someone does a 90, until someone writes a dissertation 90. on you. Like the, <laughs> what?
1: Until someone writes a dissertation about you and then yeah, until someone writes yeah, right. Okay, go.
0: that's ninety percent of advocacy. But but um, I, I think there's, it's too easy to say, you know, someone should really do something about this. Right, right, right. right. So this you know, just... the leaders should do something. The leaders should say something. But that's not how change happens. Change happens because people make a change, because people speak up. And, you know, um, I think too often, and this is in American politics too, it's the people on the extremes that speak up and be, become the squeaky wheels and then turn... You know draw policy and agenda and and practice in their directions and whereas there's this whole silent majority who thinks that like what's happening is crazy but don't say anything about it and if you don't say anything then change will never happen and the people in the extremes will always win
1: Hmm. so it's something that i think is i want to propose a propose a a reframe I, i guess if anyone is not connecting to the word the idea of like oh you have to be a leader Um, I feel like it's not like, it's like the goal of like people like, you know, quote, unquote, want to be famous. Like you don't want to be a leader for the sake of being a leader. You want to look and see what are the co that Hashem gave you that you can use to enact a change that you think will improve the from world for, from women and from humans in in general.
0: A hundred thousand percent. And I'm going to broaden that also. The from world and from women and maybe your family and maybe your profession, Yeah, there's there's all different ways. Right. We're not being a leader for the sake of, oh, I'm a leader. You're talking about about exercising leadership. Mm
2: -hmm. And think about all the opportunities you have to exercise leadership. You said in our homes, I mean, that is probably we should not underestimate that, right?
0: No, definitely not. Definitely not. Beautiful. In our homes, our communities, our, our professional lives,
2: so um, considering your depth and breadth of knowledge about you know the history of girls' education, let's talk a little bit about the successes in today's girls educational system that are in line that you feel are really in line with Sarah Schneer's legacy. I love what you were saying before is how you know she created when you say leaders, she created students who became teachers who so, you know right. I mean the you I know Leslie have spoken about the dearth or lack of Jewish education. Jewish educators and this was the renaissance of Jewish female educators by the way things are changing you should just know my daughter told me in 12th grade she's like it's like the thing to want to become a teacher now oh,
0: <laughs> just, Hashem. yeah you so you the,
2: think has really ah, changed but anyway yeah yeah so so let's talk a little bit about you know what you see is really in line with her legacy and I'm, I'm curious your opinion what you feel so you know are some a couple areas that that could use improvement
0: let's maybe start with Gnai and go to Shava. Beautiful. Okay, <laughs> where, where are problems? That there are schools, that there are places, that there are cities, there are communities in our country, I mean, in the world, where girls don't have a place yes. to go to school is yes. so horrifying to me yes. that, you know, I, I cannot imagine, you know, Sar or Vichna Kaplan mm-hmm. being like, oh, I'm sorry, you are not good enough for my Basiakov school, mm-hmm. find somewhere else. I mean, there's so antithetical to the ethos of Besyakov. I mean, Besyakov was no no Jewish girl left behind. Mm. I mean, that's the ethos of Yaakov. So the, the this phenomenon where where schools are so exclusive and make girls feel bad and make them feel like like they don't have a place in the community. Nobody wants them in their schools. It, it is it is tragic. Mm. That is that's that's like destroying kids. Uh, how it is such educational malpractice. Mm. I, I can't even, I, can't, I cannot, like, I just can't fathom it. I can't fathom that reality. And, you know, I don't live, I live in Baltimore. There's community schools. Like, that's that's not a reality here. Thank God, you know.
2: Mm. And people are speaking out against this therobunum that are really addressing this issue. So thank God, like, it's it's not completely being swept under the rug, but it, it needs to get fixed.
0: Right. It needs to get fixed. But you know what? Like, but that that means, like, everybody being involved in fixing it. Yeah. We can't abdicate kind of responsibility to also just do what we can. Mm. You know, if you are in a community like that. If you are a parent in a school like that, to to speak up and do what you can to help change that situation, that reality. The whole culture of Bezyakove, I think, is a wonderful thing. I think so. Two elements I think where Besiakov has succeeded. Number one is the level of learning. I mean, I don't think you could compare the level of learning in Besiakov today to what went on in Poland, like. Mm it's just on such a higher level really interesting that you say that <clears throat> oh yeah come on you're trying they didn't have the skills we true, have true true we're meeting rashi in third grade right where the skills weren't there but in terms of like level of learning the level of learning has only um mm-hmm. has globally has gone up mm-hmm. you know the kinds of things I mean, my goodness i'm trying to think what i learned in high school i i learned hobos halavavos i learned misilasi sharam i learned Mirtav. Me I learned Yitzchak. That's on top of like on top of, you know, Chomish and 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 all. And you know, like we tons. There's this whole like culture yeah. of 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 where like has its own celebrities and has its own um, fashion styles mm-hmm. and its own vocabulary, you know. And it's and I, I think there's something really cool and interesting about that. And I feel like what Biaico has done is created a culture where where girls are proud to be from and are excited to be from, and have and what are measures of success are internal measures of success, mm-hmm. not the external American measures of success. And I think there's something, I think there's something beautiful about hmm. that. I think that it's that it's wonderful that it's cool
2: to be from. And there's a lot of school pride. I think that's what you're talking about. I love what you said. And before we we wrap up. Um, I love what you said, though, about like being cool to be from, like, I know the thing now, like, cool girls give up their smartphones like to have a flip phone is actually a symbol of coolness in the basic oh, world isn't it fascinating i mean it's really really interesting like the whole culture um and yeah I, I think you've definitely hit the nail on the head in terms of what they're doing right obviously maybe another part of your dissertation could be like let's just mention there are many girls that do struggle in this system yeah, there are
0: like there are, look, there are you one know. of the issues is is kind of a narrowing of what's considered acceptable behavior like from a very broad, you know, Vichna Kaplan never kicked anyone out, Mm. you know, like, would would do anything to not kick out a student, whereas I think, again, that's the kind of thing that's lost a little bit of, like, oh, you're diverging, let's push you Mm -hmm. out further, and, um, you know, that is a problem, there's a lot of problems with the way Snias is taught, you know, that, that ultimately becomes Damaging. I think mm-hmm. you've talked. To, I, I mean, we've had this conversation not, not. how
2: things are changing. Really, very much so on the sneeze front in terms of education, but not in every single school. But it's you know, I think that's something. Ch- that, change is
0: happening. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Trying
2: to change that. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yes, a hundred percent. But again, it all it all depends on the school because exactly. the truth is, you know, Baysaco is not a franchise, and that's anyone right. who wants to you can start a school and call it Baysaco. Right. So the you know, base, it's hard to talk about Baysaco as one entity when they are so incredibly. Mm-hmm diverse in in every single way mm-hmm. i'm
2: glad you said that yeah absolutely but
0: still if you say snap clap snap clap <laughs> they will break into the same song <laughs> uh, so
1: besides the recommendation of knowing these songs i guess do we have any book or speaker recommendations for our listeners who would like to explore um, any of the topics that we addressed so, uh, today.
0: Yeah, I mean, I probably mentioned like a ton of books. I know, <laughs> and we'll, we'll put
1: references in the, sh- in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. yeah you'll
0: have to yeah. send yeah, us uh, uh, Naomi ones. Seidman's Revolution in the Name of Traditions, biography of Sarah Schneer. That's excellent. Um, if you're interested in just girl culture in America, Melissa Clappers, um, Jewish girls coming at the age in America, um, some uh, Rachel Mannequin I mentioned, um, Rebellion of the Daughters, Eliana Adler has written about um, Jewish girls' education. Um, Iris Perish reading Jewish women. Those are all interesting. Wow. If you're just interested on um, on Jewish women or Jewish education, those are a few off the top of wow. my head. There's a whole world here. Yeah. I'm so so appreciative that you
2: share this with us. I, I, have, I have really zero exposure to this this academic world of writing about Jewish girls' education. It's really fascinating. Are some of our oh, I mean, no, I'm sorry are some of these books too. like non-academic books that are more a little bit more easier to chew for the for
0: laymen. Um I mean, I think all the ones I mentioned are really good at being accessible okay, and having a lot of stories that kind of That's make great. it more accessible. Um also just the memoirs of Glickle of Hamlin. Everyone should read it. It's mm. so fun.
2: Hmm.
0: It's it's a memoir of oh, it's the first, you know, Jewish woman known to have like written a memoir, and it's just a fabulously fun book.
1: It's so nice. Well, Leslie, this has been a phenomenal conversation. It's so interesting, so fun. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so grateful that you took the time out of your busy schedule to come and DMC with us about just this fascinating topic and all the other tangents that we went on. It's so (laughs) nice. And um, thank you. You're welcome.
2: Here's this episode's takeaway. When we look at history, we might be surprised to discover that things we consider totally mainstream may have been initially controversial and that change in society is never simple. Ask yourself, how can I exercise my leadership skills and use my unique abilities to make a positive difference in this world? We have got some more
1: exciting content coming up okay okay it's true i'm always excited mm-hmm. about our uncovering content that's true but our next episode is one i'm especially looking forward to since i've been a long time fan of between carpools and we are going behind the scenes of between carpools by having a dmc with leah shapira one of the founders is a cookbook author pizza aficionado and just all around exceptional connector of people and discoverer of talent. And we're going to DMC with her about what it takes to do a successful side hustle, um, how to make that side hustle into a main hustle, I guess, how the team at BCP keeps coming up with their outstanding content, uh, how and why they retain their anonymity
2: online, and much more can't wait for that one well you made it to the end of another episode of deep meaningful conversations thank you for joining us for the whole thing and wait do not press stop rivki and i would really appreciate if you would take the time to rate and review our podcast also please especially for this episode check out this chock full show notes of book recommendations you'll find all the links we referenced today in today's episode
1: If you have any suggestions, feedback, or just want to say hi and tell us that you exist and that you're a DMC listener, you can email us at DMC at MeaningfulMinute.org. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. See you next episode.